You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. Today, joining us again on the podcast is Dr. Brendan Adler from Envision Medical Imaging. Brendan, I can now say you're a thoracic imaging specialist. It's one of your areas of interest. Uh, And today we're talking about chest imaging tests and chest imaging nodules. So Brendan, the first question I've got for you, welcome by the way, um, is to ask, let's talk about what are the different types of imaging tests? We're all pretty familiar with a lot of them, I think. And what place do they play in the sort of the diagnostic process? Well, there's obviously a million tests you can do for the lungs. And you know, the first one is obviously chest radiographs, which is a technique that was invented in the first decade of the 20th century and fundamentally the principles have not changed in 120 years. We don't give nearly as much x-ray dose to you as we did back then but the actual principles haven't changed at all. It's basically a 120 year old test. Then there's obviously more recently lung CTs have come around which are obviously much more sensitive but with increased sensitivity comes decreased specificity. We see a whole lot of other stuff as well. And you you would have heard on the grapevine, uh, everyone talks about low-dose and high-resolution CTs. I think these are terms that have been bandied around a bit loosely. To my understanding, a low-dose CT should be something that is a radiation dose comparable to a chest X-ray. And a high-resolution CT should be something that uses much more, but still shouldn't use large amounts. And to put some sort of context... At our practice, a conventional CT, which would be high dose, which would be staging lung cancer or looking for small details, would be about a millisievert, which is about the background radiation dose in Perth in a year. A low-dose study in our practice would be about 0.1 millisievert, which would be about a tenth that. So that's CT. We can discuss that later on. Nuclear medicine has become less significant of late. It was, you know, the primary test for pulmonary embolism, but in actual fact, CT pulmonary angiography has become really a fantastic test it's quite accurate you can get it quite quickly and you get a definitive answer whereas often with nuclear medicine tests there can be that indeterminate group that you need to follow up mr we occasionally do of the lungs but not that often because mr uses water to image and there's not a lot of water in the lungs basically so the real test these days is really fundamentally it's ct and what has happened the last few years is that we discovered that almost every pathology that we can see in the lungs is not that well seen at chest x-rays and is brilliantly seen at CTs. And it is this bizarre paradox that the lungs are the last bastion where we think plain radiographs are still the screening test. We don't use plain radiographs in the abdomen, we don't use them in the neck, we don't use them in the head, and most joints will have a MR or a CT as a (laughs) diagnostic test. But I think chest x-ray is a fantastic management tool but it's not so good diagnostically. And, you know, 120 years after the invention of chest X-rays, we've got a better diagnostic tool. And the, the classic for that would be is that it's now been shown convincingly, ignoring all the lung cancer screening studies that you guys are aware about, you would have read about, if you ignore the cost-benefit of screening for lung cancer, what all these trials have shown convincingly is CT shows small lung cancers well and chest X-rays do not. So if you then think about your GP with someone with a symptomatic condition as distinct from a screen condition, you have a smoker sitting opposite you with a cough, if you do a chest X-ray on that person, that may be your chance where you miss that person's 8mm treatable stage 1 disease because the chest X-ray will never detect 
anything less than a centimetre. And if they're in funny bits like behind the heart or in the lung apices, probably even experienced chest radiologist's hands, we won't see anything less than two centimetres. And once you're getting up to that stage, you're getting close to the bit where the cancer is not necessarily treatable, which is why we have a lung cancer survival of 15% in this country, rather than the lung cancer survival of stage one, stage two disease, which might be 85% and 60% to you know pull some figures out of the air. The downside, of course, of doing chest CTs is that you'll see a whole lot of incidental nodules because if you increase sensitivity, you'll see all the little things. But the whole point is, if you're not seeing two or three millimetre nodules in the lungs, well, you're not going to see six, seven, eight, nine millimetres nodules in the lungs. So whereas a chest X-ray might not see anything consistently less than two centimetres, and therefore very unlikely to see an incidental finding because anything more than two centimetres is very likely to be significant, the cost of that is that you miss out on all the real things that you want to find. Yeah, look, I think about the questions I ask with chest imaging, and, and I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head with probably the most common question I ask, which is, could this person have a, a lung cancer or a lung mass? And I guess what you're saying is the imaging of choice then is chest CT because you're going to diagnose it at a treatable stage and not miss a treatable cancer versus you'll only pick up the big stuff that's too late, basically. Totally. And even if you think about, you know, I could think about, we know that bronchiectasis is better seen with CT than it is with chest X-ray. Interstitial lung disease is very poorly seen with chest X-ray compared to CT. All the, you know, people have been talking about manufactured silicates and things like that. Much easier to see that at CT than you can see with chest X-rays. But even if you think about simple things like pneumonia, if someone comes to you, I mean, I've always believed that there is the expressions upper respiratory tract infection and lower respiratory tract infection are, in actual fact, respiratory tract infections that can or can't be seen by chest X-ray. So if someone comes into your practice with a fever, they've got chronic lung disease, and they're coughing up sputum, and you do a chest X-ray and you don't see pneumonia, are you not going to give them antibiotics for that presentation? Of course not. If you had someone who had, like, you know, looked anemic to you and the haemoglobin was 5 and you didn't treat that, well, then why did you do the test in the first place? Mm. So my view would be even things, simple things like chest x-rays, I'd say, why don't you just treat on spec and see whether they get better or not? If they're super sick, they probably should have a CT, I reckon, in any case. And if they are, if you do a chest x-ray and there's no pneumonia and you just treat them as an urty, you may have missed that smoker with chronic obstructive lung disease's chance to have that early lung disease picked up. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that, you know, every person who walks into, you know, your GP practice with a ERTI needs to have a CT. But what we do know, because we do a lot of these studies for other reasons, is that in actual fact, people who have ERTIs, if they have a CT, we usually see a bit of patchy stuff in the lungs, which just, you know, manifests the accuracy of it. So I hope I'm not confusing your dear listeners, but I'm not purporting that, you know, chest CT should be done for everyone with a little bit of a chest infection. But what I'm saying is we could easily diminish the amount of chest x-rays we do and save CTs when you really want to have a diagnosis. Yeah, and it, it does bring about the interesting question, which is really, like, what question are you asking that will be useful to, to order a chest x-ray in? I mean, I guess a pneumothorax or something like that might be a reasonable sort of, you know, mm. does this patient have a pneumothorax? That's probably reasonable to get a chest x-ray, isn't it? But... Yeah, and I think chest x-ray is a fantastic management tool. Does mm. the patient have a pneumothorax? You've know, you've, someone you know has got cart failure or effusions, is your treatment working? Mm. Someone you know has got pneumonia, is the pneumonia getting better? You know, a hospital situation that maybe some of the listeners don't have, but, you know, if you put lines, tubes and wires into patients, are they correctly positioned? All that sort of stuff, chest x-ray is fantastic for. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it will prove, be proven to be a fantastic management tool, much like the orthopaedic surgeons manage their plates afterwards or their fractures afterwards with 
uh, x-rays, but don't tend to use a plain film to make the initial diagnosis. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, Brendan. Thanks. Okay, let's talk about nodules because this is a you know quite an interesting and, and vexing topic for GPs. How common are chest nodules? Well, I think if you look hard enough, I think almost anyone <laughs> who's older than about ten years old, if we if you really really look hard enough and you analyse everyone, I think everyone is going to have something about one millimetre to two millimetre nodules. I don't think there's anyone on the planet who is breathed in pollution or travel outside Australia to polluted societies that doesn't have actually anything in the lungs. So it's a question of how hard you want to look. So if you said, how common are they? Well, I think almost the entire population has a, at least one nodule in their lung that would be one to two millimetres in size. And I think the real challenge for both chest radiologists and GPs referring is to have enough confidence to say these things are benign and need no follow-up and don't chase them too much. Otherwise, you then create this situation where a whole lot of incidental findings are being chased with very little likelihood of finding anything sinister. So very common, but serious nodules in the lungs, I think, are quite distinctly uncommon. Mm, Yeah, and that's the complexity of it all, isn't it? It's sorting out the the worrying from the not-so-worrying, especially when the not-so-worrying is very common. Which patients are more likely to have chest nodules? So who do we need to sort of, you know, think about, you know, in advance? Well, you know, obviously people have had either smoking exposure or dust exposure. I was talking earlier on about the manufactured silicates, which we all know has become quite important in society at the moment, but other dust as well, clearly. You're half expecting to see something before you do the test. Smokers get a bronchiolitis, which often manifests as... So what we see, something called respiratory bronchiolitis, is like little tiny little nodules around the airways, and we see that quite commonly in smokers, and it's of no significance whatsoever, but can clearly be seen quite commonly. There are certain parts of the world where granulomatous disease is quite common. You know, if you come from the Mississippi Delta in America, there's a lot of granulomatous disease, and then obviously there are bits of other countries where TB is common, and, and depending on the setting. In Australia, we don't have nearly that amount of granulomatous disease. Mm. Yeah, and you've just sort of touched on, I guess, my next question, which is what are the things that, that cause chest nodules? So they're infections and exposures? So the most common things would be, you know, like bronchiolitis that just becomes fixed and scarred and it ends up being a nodule that never gets better. A granulomatous infection, but doesn't have to be like, you know, we think about TB as a granulomatous infection, but varicella pneumonia as a kid. I mean, I guess these days people are not getting varicella these days because they're being immunised. But those sorts of, a lot of the pneumonitides of childhood can leave you with nodules later on in life. That's the same sort of adenoviruses that might give you bronchiectasis later on in life. You might have bronchiolectasis rather than bronchiectasis, and then that may manifest as a sort of nodule that presents later on things. So childhood infections, and then the other dust and, you know, inhalational exposure agents, and then certain settings in the world where we know certain bugs that leave you with nodules are quite common. So when you see a chest nodule, and when we get, say, a report of a nodule, what are the features that we might look for in a report, and what are the features that you look for that would sort of cause alarm? So the first thing is size, uh, and no matter what the nodule looks like, big nodules are more likely to be cancer than little nodules. But we've known from the lung cancer screening studies that beautifully circumscribed solid nodules up to five to six millimetres are almost always benign and pretty much in non-smokers always benign and can be ignored. Spiculated nodules that have rough surfaces are obviously more concerning to us and increasingly 
with the increasing prevalence of the condition that we all grew up in med school and knew as bronchioalveolar carcinoma, but is now called a carcinoma of lipidic growth type, is becoming quite common, and that presents as a ground glass nodules, which are these sort of softy sort of nodules, and they're quite commonly seen. And that, to me, is now the real problem, not solid nodules, because I'm very confident saying a solid circumscribed nodule is benign, a speculated one is of concern and needs to be dealt with. But the ones I tend to follow up much more would be like a five millimetre to 10 millimetre ground glass nodule in the lung that needs to be followed up because that could be very early one of these indolent cancers. The good side about that is that those lipidic growth type cancers are very slow growing. So you've got years up your sleeve to, to watch them. So it's not as though they're gonna suddenly turn into what usually happens is the central bit of them turns solid, which is the adenocarcinoma bit happening, and then they get bigger and bigger, and then they metastasize. But that wouldn't be till that little one millimeter nodule becomes a 10 to 20 millimeter nodule and then metastasizes. So you can sit and watch these ground glass nodules, even if they are adenocarcinoma in situ or low grade cancers, they're not gonna suddenly jump out and you know spread anywhere. So you can be very confident that even if someone thinks with a reasonable index of suspicion, this will be cancerous that we can still watch them. Paradoxically, the more circumscribed one of these ground glass nodules is, the more likely it is to be cancerous, which is completely different to solid nodules because cancers start as one cell and then turn into a sphere. So a perfectly circumscribed ground glass nodule is more likely to be malignant than any irregular one, which is more likely to be just a bit of infection that you've mm. caught. And the big distinction with ground glass nodules is that the little adenovirus that you had you caught in the community three weeks ago, we will pick up at CTs as a sort of patchy little patches of ground glass, but they tend to be irregular and poorly circumscribed. So there's this very interesting paradox between solid nodules, which the more circumscribed ones are more likely to be benign and the more irregular ones are more likely to be malignant, with ground glass nodules where the more circumscribed ones are paradoxically more likely to be malignant and the more irregular ones are more likely to be just infection or scarring from years gone by. Hmm, interesting. Let's talk about guidelines for follow-up and, and when you can stop follow-up, because I think that's an, an interesting sort of topic. So what are the guidelines out there for, for follow-up of nodules? And There's a lot of guidelines, but unfortunately the guidelines are consensus statements. And there's a big group called the Fleischner Society, which is a thoracic radiology group, and they group them into smokers and non-smokers. But the, they use that from smoking data and then they just guess what should happen for non-smoking data. So in actual fact, the data for non-smoking is with very little evidence basis. And the beautiful thing in this country is that smoking instance is quite low now. So in actual fact, the majority of your patients are not smokers, yeah. as distinct from smokers. So the Fleischner guidelines that you all used to, have, you know, like you see a nodule, follow it in three months and then another six months, then 12 months and two years, is of questionable benefit even in smokers, and I think in non-smokers is of no benefit whatsoever. What I would say these days is in any patient population, if you've got a nodule that's about five to six millimetres, particularly if it's a bit irregular, it needs to be followed, but it probably can, first study can be done in three months, but it hasn't changed in three months, particularly if they're not a smoker or they haven't got any other risk factors such as family history of disease or other risk factors, you can then probably jump out to about a year at that point. And then if it's been stable for 18 months, you can probably be reasonably confident not much is gonna happen. The thing about solid nodules is if they're gonna to turn to cancers, they tend to turn to cancers in two years. The lipidic growth type form of nodules have a very slow volume doubling time and growth rate, and they may take years to turn into cancer. So at the moment, the feeling is, you know, like a five millimetre ground glass nodule doesn't need to be followed. Five to 10 millimetres we need to follow. 
But at the moment, there's no solid evidence about that we would follow them for three years, for five years, or for the rest of their life. And then I would be heavily geared by other clinical risk factors in their life. I personally think, given the ability of us to do chest CTs at a chest X-ray type dose now, which is very, very low, we will increasingly find that we just follow the ground glass nodules in people for life because mm. no one truly knows when they're going to start turning. But you might find that you can increase the intervals to two yearly or something like that. And a lot of the lung cancer screening studies have shown also, even in lung cancer screening, probably two-year screening is probably going to be okay too. Mm. No, look, that's really helpful. It, it certainly provides a lot more sort of rich information about the type of decisions that we have to make. And, you know, I think particularly, you know, I, I think the, the really bit of information that's perhaps lacking is is perhaps when you do see a nodule, what's the actual risk of this actually being going on to malignancy over time? And that's, you know, because patients worry a lot about nodules. And if, I think if we can arm them with that bit of information of, well, there's this, this nodule there, which we do need to follow up, but this is the likelihood of it, of it progressing on to something sig- significant. That's probably a bit more helpful. Yeah. And there are algorithms that predict, you know, the likelihood of cancers and things like that. But much like so many other things like first trimester screening or other screening tests that give you, or even for that matter, coronary calcium screening. It's all very well on a population basis, but doesn't actually help the person who's sitting in the seat on the other side of the table to you. And so really it's the sort of individual growth pattern and individual morphology of the nodule in the patient sitting opposite you that will help them. Because a whole bunch of studies saying that, you know, you've got a 1.3% per year chance of this being a cancer... That's a very difficult concept to deal with for most mm. people. They'll just say, well, I want it out in any case, even though there's a 98.7% chance every year that it won't be cancer. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, understanding risk is, is difficult, particularly for patients. Brendan, that's been a, an excellent discussion on uh, chest imaging and chest nodules. Thank you for your time. A pleasure, Tim.